Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Well, hello, welcome, and thank you again, many of you, for tuning in today. If this is your first time or long time absence, we want to welcome you back. We're glad to have you with us as well. I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, and today I'm pleased to welcome back to the microphone Adam Hammett. Adam and I will be discussing Tim Cockrell's sermon from this past Sunday, and we'll also be inserting a timely twist into our discussion here near the end of our discussion, we trust. So Tim shared that message from Matthew chapter 5, verses 7 through 12 there in the Sermon on the Mount. So Adam, it's great to have you back with us today. Look, uh, looking forward to discussing this passage with you. Glad to be here, Bart. Thanks for having me. Well, let's just start by getting real personal, Adam. Uh, Tim began his presentation this past week with the idea that a heart transformed by Jesus will change everything in that person's life. And you and I both know you just went through, not too long ago, a pretty thorough going over, I'll call it, this past spring. Uh, you were the church's candidate for the position of pastor for administration. But I'm sure there are those listening who perhaps didn't get in on those sessions where they got to hear your account of Jesus' work in your life when you submitted to his leadership. So are you up for another go around here? Would you mind sharing a little bit about how Jesus has worked or maybe even working now in your life? Sure, sure. Well, the essence of the story is that I didn't plan to be where I am right now. Um, I'm not wise enough to do that. My plan was to be a math professor for my entire life, to have a family and be a math professor. Uh, and I was really pleased to serve in the role that I did at the university and, and at other institutions as well. It's something that I dearly love and continue to love uh, in a much, much smaller, diminished capacity at the university, I'm teaching one class this semester. But as I was given more and more responsibility at the church, uh, walking through a, a tough time of transition at the church where I was asked to do uh, certain kinds of things pertaining to church leadership, and uh, just as I really pressed in to see what it's what it means to, to shepherd the flock of God in the role of elder. The Lord really just started to do a work in my heart and in my family's hearts as well. And at some point, a pastoral position was, was put up that, that really seemed like things that were within my uh, framework of giftings and things that I had been familiar with and grown to love over the course of my time in serving in leadership at Grace. And uh, I had some pretty pointed conversations with uh, a few key individuals, and uh, all of them said, please uh, put your name forward. And uh, the, that, was, <laughs> that was a process, and I, di I didn't know where it would lead. I actually didn't think there was much of a chance that it would end up leading to where it did. Uh, but here we are. And I'm serving in this role as pastor for administration. Um, I, I love it. I love that I'm still able to engage with students. I'm still teaching, like I said, one class. I see that as strategic. And, and what a process that's been. Uh, it's completely shifting from into something that I could never have predicted. I, I was just emailing with a colleague today. 
uh, we were working on a research project and I told him for the first time what's going on. And, and he just thought, what? That was a, that was an SMH moment. It was a shake my head moment. I'm sure for him. It was, it was, he just thought, oh, I, I don't understand. I mean, he's, he, he's, he works at a secular university and doesn't really have a category for that kind of a decision. But when God gets a hold of your heart in that way, uh, things like that will happen and they will make sense in a way that they might not make sense to others. Well, okay. So in the context of this particular matter, uh, you were, you having a changed heart, a transformed heart, uh, Tim's mentioning here last week, how would the, uh, let's just call the old Adam. And I don't know how, how far back that goes before uh, you came to Christ, but I know it was uh, not as early as some, how would the old Adam have responded versus how the new Adam responds and how explain that change of uh, between the old and the new and how that worked in your life in this particular circumstance? Well, first of all, I'll say that the old Adam would be shaking his head at the, <laughs> at the, the Adam now and the old Adam might be not as far back as you might think. I mean, we might be going only back, you know, eight, 10 years or something like that. Again, this, this has been jarring even for me in a good way and surprising that, that it was a direction that I even had a desire to go, mm-hmm. but I just, I could not shake it. Um, I think that, man, I don't know. I, I, I think that where I am now, and having kind of worked in pastoral ministry and in church leadership, there's just, there's just something about the pastoral office itself and eldering itself where you realize that not everything can be reduced to some kind of to-do list or an algorithm or something like that. Uh, That's hard for a math professor. (laughs) That's really hard for a math (laughs) professor. And I mean, I think I probably had, sort of just a bunch of inaccurate ideas about what church life together looks like. Um, I, you know, I thought, man, why can't, why can't there just be a list, a to-do list? Like if this, then this, if this, then that. And, but pastoral work, church leadership, church life together rarely works that way. You can have the exact same circumstances that you're facing with one, you know, a pair of families or individuals and the approach in the one case will not be anything like the approach in the other case. And they both look the same on paper, maybe. That's right. That's yeah. right. So that's something that, as I've gotten older, as I've grown, that the Lord has really just taught me to slow down, take in all the information. Don't think that every situation that you run into, oh, I've done this before. I know exactly what to do. Uh, no, uh, the Lord knows, and we're going to have to lean on Him for discernment. But... Uh, but that's something that I've really grown in. I've just learned that I know a lot less than I thought I did. <laughs> oh, isn't that the truth? You get older and you know less and less and you yeah. realize it. Adam, let me dig down just a little bit more deeper. I want to turn over another leaf in this part of the discussion, and that is this. When I uh, when I was originally thinking through uh, this discussion that we're having and going to have, I was thinking, uh, you know, Tim's saying that the heart that has been transformed, I'm thinking at the point of salvation. What you just said, though, reminds me that we are saved 
Yeah. We are being saved. And you're talking about that being saved part yeah. uh, over the, you know, maybe eight years ago, you yeah. wouldn't have thought the same way here. Let's talk about the idea of that being saved. We, we call it something else. Often we call it, uh, it's the whole idea of coming closer to Christ or growing in Christ. Uh, let's talk about that in your life and why, what's happened over the past eight years that would bring you this to this yeah. point? I mean, right. So, I mean, I think what we're talking about is sanctification. Exactly. All right. Just a justification. We're a new creature. Everything's changed, right? Uh, our affections have changed, but that, that looks different. The older that we get, uh, we become more and more like Christ, uh, hopefully as we continue to press in, uh, to him and into his word. And, and, uh, as we're kind of engaged in relationships with others, um, I, I have been personally, what's been different about the last eight years has really been this community and the fact that I have had people speaking into my life and willing to challenge me. Uh, this has been a community unlike any other community that, that I've been involved with over the course of my Christian life. It's a, it's a place that really puts a high value on membership, uh, that that means something. Uh, there's an expectation that we will have intentional invasiveness in one another's lives. We'll, we'll know each other and be willing to be known by others. And really kind of pressing into that over the last eight to 10 years, uh, specifically the last eight years as, we, as I've been here, that, that has been the most formative years of my Christian walk, no question in my mind. But it really has been the instrument of the church that has brought that about. And people like you, Bart, and, and other leaders that have really showed me what it looks like uh, to lead well, to listen well, and to have my life examined by others and give them, you know, freedom to speak into it as they see fit. Yeah. Right. And, and of course, you know, we talked about the idea of, of uh, uh, being transformed. Uh, we, we are transformed. We're being transformed. And then we will be transformed eventually That's into right. the likeness of, of Christ yeah. uh, and in that final day. So Tim, uh, Tim also pointed out that the eight Beatitudes, they neatly divide into the vertical. Uh, that would be man's relationship with God there in the first four Beatitudes and the horizontal or man's relationship with men. And that this concept ties uh, a nice connection with the giving, ties into that nice connection with the giving of the Ten Commandments back in Exodus chapter 20. Uh, Tim thought that was significant. What's the significance of that? Let's talk about that a little bit. Well, I mean, Tim had pointed out in the first sermon that in some sense, and I think, I think this is absolutely true, uh, the way that the Sermon on the Mount starts talks about how Jesus went up on the mountain, yes? And uh, we see parallels to that in Moses himself, mm -hmm. the, law, the lawgiver, going up on the mountain. And, and then Moses receives the Ten Commandments and uh, brings those to the people in Exodus chapter 20. And uh, there is kind of a vertical and horizontal element to the Ten Commandments. It's pretty clear. I mean, you have the first four commandments, uh, no idols, or like no gods before me, no idols, uh, do not take my name in vain, keep the Sabbath day. Those are the four vertically oriented components having to do with our relationship with God. 
And then there's the hinge upon which the Ten Commandments swing. The fifth one is honor your father and mother, right? And then the rest of them pertain to our inter our relationship to others. So vertical and horizontal. And we see that here as well. We see the first four of the Beatitudes really have to do with recognizing our sinfulness and, and complete inability to do anything about it before God. So it's recognizing the desperate state that we find ourselves in as it pertains to God himself. And then the last four Beatitudes are talking about, okay, how does that work out in our relationships, in our relationship with others? So it's an absolute parallel between what we see back, you know, with the, the lawgiver Moses and the giving of the law there and what it means to keep the two greatest commandments, love God and love neighbor. We see that, that work out very specifically when Jesus speaks to, the, to his disciples on the mountain Jesus, the better Moses, <laughs> the fulfiller of the law, uh, telling us what it looks like to live as his disciples and to love God and love others as we do that. And really bringing into focus, wouldn't you say, the idea that the, old, the New Testament is the continuation, it's the, it's the better way, we, we can say, the fulfillment yeah. of, uh, of what the Old Testament could not do mm-hmm. and uh, could not be. But uh, the people, Tim pointed out last week, I believe that uh, Abraham was saved just the same as you and I. He came to faith just the same as you and I, by grace, through faith, given by God. Mm -hmm. And he was uh, saved from his sins and the effect of his sins because of that, just like you and I. That's right. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's an amazing thing. I, I want to hit on another thing that we have heard often here over the past couple of years, and, and it, I don't think it can be said enough. I was talking with a buddy of mine, and I used this phrase with him, and it, it resounded with him. Um, we heard the idea of preaching the gospel to ourselves, and Tim reminding us how important it is, especially in areas such as peacemaking. We, we have here in the, in the ninth verse of chapter 5, blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called sons of God. Um, being merciful in, in verse 7. The idea here, if we are preaching the gospel to ourselves, we are re- being reminded of the way that God has saved us and what he saved us from, what he saved us to, and reminded how much God has loved us and shown us love in those ways. We need to be sharing that same kind of love with others. That's right. Uh, we recognize the fact that we deserve death. We deserve separation from God. And yet he has made a way for us to be reconciled to him. We've been shown incredible mercy. I'm reminded of uh, the book, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul, where he said, he talks about... Now we go to a Baptist church here. He's Presbyterian. Can we do that? <laughs> I love R.C. Sproul. That's right. I love him. Right. The, the, right, the holiness of God, one of the, one of the, I think that's probably his kind of crowning achievement in terms of his writings, but he talks specifically about mercy and justice. And he, and he says specifically, you better never ask God for justice because you might just get it. <laughs> and you don't want that. Yeah. You, you want, want mercy. You yeah, that's right. Right. And uh, we and God has given us mercy beyond what anything anything that we could actually comprehend in full, and therefore that compels us to show mercy to others in a way that that doesn't compute. It's not normal. And uh, Tim Keller, I think, says it best. He says the gospel compel uh, actually makes it so that we ought never to look down our nose at anyone. 
And that's a remarkable thing that there is, I can't, I can't ever say, Oh, I've achieved this particular level. And, and now I look over here and I see this person that's struggling with this or that issue. And I think, man, they just are not up to snuff. None of us are up to snuff. It's all of mercy. It's all of grace. And people ought to feel that, wow, this person, even though I see them as kind of a giant in the faith, is really far along, they are not looking, that, looking down their nose at me. They care about my flourishing in this context. And they are extending nothing but mercy to me. And even when they're speaking truth into my life with grace and challenging me, they are doing so with an eye toward, no, I love you. And this, and this discipline that I am kind of bringing into your life is because I love you and I care about your flourishing. So, well, let's, let's talk about that in the context of this question that came in from one of our church members here. Uh, this person asks, where does mercy or peacemaking in particular meet discipleship or discipline, specifically as a parent? And uh, let's just talk, I mean, I know you're the parent of teens. Uh, perhaps this one is too, or maybe they're a parent of uh, babies or you know, older parents, older children. How, do you, how does that work in parenting? Right. So, um, why don't, do you, do you have the answer to that question? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't, but I can, I'll tell you what, I'm going to, I'm going to give you some time. I hit you with that one. I, I will say that the, uh, one of the most difficult lessons that Sandy and I had to learn with our children. And I, I mentioned this just the other day to somebody, uh, in our adult Bible fellowship, I, I had the question, I said, where were you when you realized that you weren't the Holy Spirit? <laughs> and I think that that's a, it's a, a very good question. I don't know how I came up with it, but the idea is that so often we think that if we just do the right things, uh -huh. the right rules, the right, uh, this, that, and the other, our kids are going to turn out fine yeah. and, you know, spoil the rod, spare, spare the rod, spoil the child type of thing. Well, you know, as we both know, that is not a, tr that is a truism, not a hundred uh, percent you know, this is guaranteed. And, uh, but, but the idea though, is that as, uh, you know, you and I've talked previously, the idea of discipline, God disciplines those whom he loves. That's right. And it's a, it's a gracious act. Mm -hmm. It's also a merciful act mm -hmm. because hopefully it's teaching us that discipline is helping us to understand what can happen yeah. if we do not get it. Yeah. Uh, and what eventually will happen, there is a price to pay for sin and Jesus has already paid it. We just have to uh, uh, allow that sin to be applied to our account. Yeah, that's right. I, I think that there was a moment in time where Rachel and I realized that we weren't as good of parents as we thought we were. <laughs> Uh, and and that, teenagers often will bring us yeah, to that point, right. won't they? Yeah, and I realized, uh, as we've already said, in church life, I've come to realize this in the past, you know, eight to ten years. Again, same situations. Uh, I try to do the same kind of thing, and it just doesn't work because people are different. That's it. And you realize that in the in the blood family context as well. And it just... There just needs to be a patience there. But I think that there is a, a parallel to, to church discipline in that in church discipline, uh, a lot of people think of church discipline as 
the end of church discipline where we're putting someone out of the church because we can no longer affirm that that person is a regenerate believer because they have refused to repent. But even that act itself, Bart, Mm -hmm. is an act of mercy (laughs) because our hope is that that act will ultimately turn their heart back to God and recognize the error of their ways. It's a picture of what will be true of their life. That is separation from the body of Christ for eternity. That is a, a picture of what will happen if they don't turn. And we're doing it now so that they come to that realization and turn. And, uh, but the corrective discipline that happens before that last stage, I am so thankful for that. I'm thankful mm-hmm. for it in my own life. There's been times when I haven't enjoyed it. There's been times when I really haven't enjoyed actually speaking into someone's life. That's been, that's hard, but I am so thankful that people have done it for me. I know that there are people that are so thankful that I've done it for them. And the same is true in the, in the blood family dynamic yeah. as well. Uh, yeah. we have a... We have a uh, we have a mandate from Scripture as parents that that is that is what we're supposed to be about. And if we don't do that, then we're not loving our kids well. Um, but it is hard to <laughs> figure out where that line is. is. And and yeah. I think yeah, you know, being that person who is who has a spirit of mercy, mm-hmm. a, a, an idea of mercy, we want to be merciful to you. And part of that is going to be we're not going to let you do that. Yeah a child, uh, we are, you know, we're not going to get in an argument with you. We're going to tell you this is what's going to happen. But it's the whole idea of a coach. A coach does not uh, bring you to practice and just say, go go play, and we'll see how it turns out in the real game. Right. He runs you through, or she runs you through disciplined 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 uh, uh trials and disciplined discipline forming uh, uh, uh well what i want to say you push you through your paces so that when the game time comes you are ready to play the game well mm-hmm. game of life as, as it were and in uh, such a case we have a, a situation where we're not raising children mm-hmm. we're here to raise adults we're here to raise godly adults not godly children um, let's move on here, and this is a little bit in the same vein. Tim spent a significant amount of his time uh, talking about the idea of being a peacemaker, as we see there in verse 9. And I look at our societal, our political landscape here in the United States, I don't think it's a leap to say that this may be one aspect of this teaching that is growing harder and harder every day, perhaps harder than any other aspect of the, the teaching here in chapter 5 especially in some of today's key public discourses. How can Christians help to maintain peace in the discussions? And I might add, we have here in Ohio, here in the United States, we have a an issue coming up that is going to be very contentious in November of 2023, issue one. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about how should Christians be interacting with the society at large mm-hmm. in dealing with these hard issues where we have convictions. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I think it's important that we be clear about what the Bible teaches on a given issue, but we don't do so in a shrill or obnoxious way. Um, and that by itself should distinguish us from the grand narrative that's going on, because that has become the nature of our public discourse is just kind of a shrill, 
you know, um, combative tone where we're seeking to kind of tear down opponents. Both leaders on the right and the left. That is politically. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So I do think it's important, like on an issue like abortion. I mean, the Bible's crystal clear that that's wrong. Um, We don't apologize for that. Um, We celebrate life. But we just declare that to be so in a way that's peaceable, winsome. And if someone wants to disagree with us, uh, fine. But I mean, we're still going to walk forward with conviction that no, this is actually an affront to God. And uh, I don't need to shout or yell or, you know, uh, tear down in the process. But I just stand with conviction and say, look, the Bible's clear on this. uh, And I'm not going to apologize for what it says. In fact, I'm going to celebrate what it says. But I'm also going to do it in such a way that distinguishes me from from what's going on in, in public discourse. And I whole. think, is this, uh, I need to ask myself, is the way I am handling this showing my neighbor that I love them? Sure, right. That's I right. can disagree, and then of course in our country, in our society, we often have the idea, if you disagree with me, you don't like me. Yeah. No, I think it's very appropriate to say, hey, I love you. That's right, yeah. But I have my convictions too, and I... They're formed by scripture that I believe is immovable and has been true since the beginning of time. And I'm here to promote that and to share that with you. One book that Tim mentioned on this peacemaker front was the Ken Sandy book, which I commend highly. Uh, And I, (laughs) I really enjoyed the three categories that Tim highlighted peace faker, which is someone who just pretends that everything is okay. Right. That's not a right disposition. That's shirking responsibility that we have to be like proactive in pursuing peace. Uh, just acting as if everything's okay and even letting ourselves be run over, you know, in, in, inappropriately. That is not a, being a peacemaker. Peacebreaker is someone that, you know, is coming in like a bull in a china shop. They're almost... You, I mean, you've probably known this type of person. It just seems like everywhere they are, there just seems to be a, an, a hum of controversy and drama. Um, and that's, that's the, I think, the essence of what a peacebreaker is. Uh, but we are to pe- be like Jesus. Jesus was a confrontive guy. I mean, he didn't walk around and just say, well, I mean, you can have your opinion and I can have mine. No, I mean, he challenged you know, and he, he said some hard things to people, but he did it in a way that really distinguished him from, you know, from the public discourse of the day. And people saw that. He mm-hmm. taught them as one who had authority. That's one way. They say, it doesn't say, though, that he banged them on the heads with it. He just spoke truth. That's right. Yeah, that's and exactly did it right. redemptively. So, okay, we talk about Jesus. We talk about our our person that we look at for guidance. Okay. How did he do that within the church? There are given those individuals, leaders, and I'm not at all equating elders or deacons with Jesus. However, I am saying that uh, the order of church leadership, we have uh, adopted a, a, a polity here over the past eight years that we think is most scriptural. And we're currently engaged right now in our annual nomination of individuals for the offices of elder and deacon how does this passage instruct us as members of grace as we consider whom we might suggest for these offices? We're in a time of nominations, of suggestions. Let's, let's talk about 
how we should be evaluating the individuals we are uh, who are before us. Mm-hmm. Well, again, the Beatitudes, the first, the first four of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Again, these are, these, these, these are describing the disposition of one who have recognized their spiritual bankruptcy and their great need for a savior to come in and actually make reconciliation with God. And that's Jesus. Uh, these are people who have recognized that they don't have anything that they can come with and bring to God and have that be credited to them as salvific in nature. But And then the second four is, okay, now that we have recognized the great gift that we have been given in salvation and being disciples of Jesus Christ, the second four Beatitudes write, uh, Blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who are persecuted, <laughs> mm. right? I mean, these are, these are people that have taken the salvation that has been gifted to them in Christ Jesus, and it started to work itself out in their life, and they have the marks and character of ones who have been utterly changed by that gospel reality. And if you read the qualifications in like 1 Timothy chapter 3, for instance, you see clearly that 90% of them are truly character traits. They're not things that I can like check a box on. They're things that are inward transformations of the heart. Mm -hmm. There are things that, uh, you know, are observable from the outside in some sense, but a lot of them are internal. It's there are things that, that God has done and and the transformative work by his spirit in our lives. And, uh, there are some things that are outward, uh, manifestations of that. Uh, but it is possible for someone to be apt to teach and for them to not be a person of, of, of high character. Um, so I would say that, the Beatitudes are a thing that we can look to to point us to the kinds of individuals that we ought to be looking for, people that are leading their family well, people that are humble, people that, you know, when they are brought into a situation, they bring stability and peace. Not people that when they come in, man, it just feels like things get stirred up, right? Big pin. That's right. Big pin. <laughs> That's right. With dirt flying right. all around Like uh, someone who leads their family well, and you're like, man, there is something there. Someone who brings stability to a situation. Someone who isn't puffed up about that either. They're just humble, meek. Um, those are the kinds of people we want to look to as, no, this is, this is someone that the Lord has really brought them to a place where I think that they are qualified to lead, lead the Lord's church. Um, so. And then uh, with regards to deacons, you're speaking specifically, I think, to elders there, but then you go in. Yeah, but, I, but amazingly, the same applies. Yeah, amazingly, I mean, a lot, a lot of the qualifications are the same. Well, most of them are, yeah. I think, except one. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, well, apt to teach, and there's kind of a, a requisite authority vested in the office of elder. And amazingly, Bart, this is the interesting one. Uh, the qualification that is uh, under the elder list that isn't under the deacon list, hospita- hospitable. They are people that are willing to invite others into their life and have them in their home in the most vulnerable of places and to 
let them look at their life and to, to let people speak into their life and to speak into the lives of others. They are a hospitable individual. You feel that this person really wants you to come into their life, to come into their home, to see how they're living life. They don't, they don't hide. They don't, they don't have, it's, they have a, they have a strange kind of resistance to an, a completely private form of life. And uh, that's a qualification for elder. <laughs> I mean, if I just told you hospitable and I said, okay, which office does this belong under? You might say deacon, deacon. but it's under elder. So that's, that's interesting. But, mo- but almost all of the qualifications are character qualities. And uh, there's a big overlap between the elder and deacon office. Uh, but again, the apt to teach one, the authority, hus- hospitality, that belongs in the elder office. And of course, here we, we also uh, nominate women, men and women to serve in the role of deacon. And I would, just, I would just admonish our people to be looking for those individuals that really stand out in terms of being just forces of stability in everything that they do, everything that they put their mind to. They come with a sense of humility and peace that just brings stability to whatever, whatever they put their mind to. And they're just willing servants. They're willing to do anything that the Lord would have them do uh, in his service uh, in this church context. And I might add even ones who are growing, yeah, ones in right. whom perhaps you've noticed some growth or some areas where they just, uh, or maybe asking them, hey, how have you grown? Yeah. And hearing those stories, those can be so encouraging. Yeah. And I hope, I mean, this has been, a, this is a lesson I learned, especially back in 2020. This is an incredibly important process because we do not know what lies ahead. We just don't. <laughs> we're we're I mean, selecting leaders for the coming four years. That's right. And, and like, we don't know what's going to happen. Right. And the people, our people need to be invested and be thinking proactively about, okay, who is someone who I could see bringing stability in a situation that just feels chaotic and maybe completely out of control. And if you, if you sense this person's, this person's name comes to mind. Think about nominating that person. Go talk to that person. Another one, another qualification that sometimes we overlook is uh, they aspire to the office. It's something that they actually desire to do. So if you approach someone and, and you say, hey, would you ever consider serving as an elder? And they say, ah, I just, I don't know. I mean, I, re- I, I don't know if that's something I want to do right now. I mean, my admonition right now would be to say, hey, go think and pray about it. Take some time. But I'm not going to twist your arm to serve in that role either. It needs to be something that you really aspire to and desire to, and a role that you desire to serve in. So When the times get tough, you need to want to be there. That's right. That's exactly <laughs> You right. need to want to be there. Yeah. While we're this close to it, Adam, on that particular subject, can you give us uh, just a, a quick uh, process uh, overview, the uh, process that we use to select these servant leaders? Right. So on September 20th, we opened the nomination process. August 20th, I believe. Oh, oh right. August 20th. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. August 20th. Uh, the nomination window will be open until September 11th. That's a Monday. Um, I don't think we're going to put a hard time stamp on that or anything, but people can nominate all the way through that Monday, September the 11th. 
Uh, we've already had a you know a, a goodly number of of nominations come in, but but we just we really believe that the Lord is pleased to speak through uh, the body that is His church, the membership of the church. Mm-hmm. So we really are relying on on members of this church to kind of be our eyes and ears in terms of who are those people that really stand out as forces of stability and meekness and and serve and servanthood and and uh and peacemaking that that we we want to have lead our church going forward so september 11th the nomination process stops uh there's a group of elders and deacons that get together and kind of look over the final tallies there uh the number of nominations is a big factor in terms of determining who will go from being a nominee to a candidate that is put forward for a vote. But that's not the only consideration that's given. Uh, but there will probably be two or three elder candidates and seven to ten deacon candidates that will eventually put, be put forward to the congregation once the elders and deacons have kind of vetted those lists. Um and those individuals have been been approached and they've agreed to serve. They go through a vetting, pro, a further vetting process, a questionnaire and interview process. And then eventually those individuals that uh, go through that process are put forward for a congregational vote. And uh, those, those ones are put forward for potential affirmation into the office of elder or deacon at our annual business meeting on November 19th this year. Very good. Well, it's a process that we invite the congregation to be involved in. All active members can go to our church website at gracecedarville.org, click on the nomination tab up top of the website, and uh, just flow through. You can uh, submit those digitally uh, through the website, or you can pick up a hand or a a form that you can write those into the old-fashioned way, which is is fine. We're happy to receive those. Yeah, we have paper copies, and we have the, the nomination form. And the, and the webpage itself is helpful in that it has a list of eligible members. Uh, I, I've I found it to be a helpful exercise to just read through the, those names and think, oh, yeah. Wow. And, and it's helpful to go in with the idea, who am I seeing who is actually doing the work of an elder today, mm-hmm. doing the work of a deacon today. We, uh, I've often said to people, we don't, uh, somebody does not become an elder simply because they have been told, now you're an elder by the church. They are an elder because they've already been doing the work of the elder. It's more of an affirmation sure. of what people are seeing mm-hmm. than, a, uh, than a stopwatch that just starts right now. And okay, now you go do the work yeah. of an elder. Yeah, I think that as we've gotten more and more used to this polity, that's that's something that we have learned more and more. If someone rolls off as an elder or a deacon, that doesn't mean that they're not elding and deaconing anymore. <laughs> uh, they just they keep doing the work of an elder and the work of a deacon. They just may not have be at the meetings necessarily. Well, and I, one would hope if it's coming from the right place, they can't help but do that, right? Yeah, yeah, that's Good. right. Adam, uh, we've uh, we've gone off onto that uh, strain of thought, and it's been a good thought. I wanted to do want to end with one one question here. I, I know that there may be some uh, out there thinking, you know, I'm committed to Jesus. I, I've been working hard since I came to faith to get my life in line with with what Jesus is teaching here in the Beatitudes, but I can't do it. I just keep failing. How can you encourage that person? 
Well, that's a good question. (laughs) I think it's important to realize who the Sermon on the Mount is written to, and Tim has just done an amazing job of pointing that out time and again. He's He's not giving us a a method by which we enter the kingdom of God. He's talking about what kingdom citizenry looks like. These are disciples, people who have already trusted in Christ for salvation. And now what he's calling us to is a life of holiness. This is is what this looks like practically. 1 John is a book I like to go to that is really a book about assurance. How do I know that I'm a disciple? Well, do you love Jesus? Do you love his commands, even though you might not obey them perfectly all the time? And do you love his people? That's the big three aspects of what John is getting at in 1 John. If those three things are true of you, then you're a disciple of, of Jesus Christ. Uh, and and uh, I, I've been reading this book by Kevin DeYoung. It's called Impossible Christianity. When it has a, a hilarious subtitle, Why Following Jesus Does Not Mean You Have to Change the World, Be an Expert in Everything, Accept Spiritual Failure, and Feel Miserable Pretty Much All the Time. And I think the book on the whole does a good job of addressing the exact issue you're getting at. But there's one chapter devoted to the Sermon on the Mount, and he actually titles it Sermon of Misery, with a question mark in parentheses, in parentheses on the Mount. And he talks about what it's getting at, what it's trying to accomplish. And I think this last paragraph is really, really pointed uh, to this end. He says, Walking in the way of the Sermon on the Mount means walking close to Jesus. The relentless subplot to this entire sermon comes in the form of this question. Are you with me? Are you really with me? Are you with me no matter what? Submitting to this sermon means finally and fully submitting to Jesus. The law in the Sermon on the Mount reflects the heart of the lawgiver. The commands of Jesus are not meant to crush us any more than Jesus means to crush us. Jesus came to save us, to enlist us, and to be with us until the end of the age. To the unbelieving and unrepentant, Jesus will be a terror. But to all who know the Son, to those who look for rest in the Son, to those who are eager to walk with the Son and learn from the Son, the yoke he gives you is easy, and the burden he asks you to carry is light. You've been seeking to serve the Lord uh, for 20, what, 25 plus years? Yes. Yeah. And what you're saying there, I think, is uh, those who are having struggles, join the club. We all are having, we all don't, none of us do it exactly right all the time. Mm-hmm. We need to keep going back and keep our focus on Jesus and nothing else, not ourselves and not our failures, that's on right. his righteousness. Yeah, that's right. And the Sermon on the Mount is a great blessing to that end. Great place to start. Mm-hmm. Adam, thanks for joining us today. Appreciate your wisdom. Yes. We've been digging deeper today with Adam Hammett, and we do invite you to share your questions and comments, as one did earlier this week, with us each week by emailing them to contact at gracecedarville.org. Plan to join us next time. We'll be continuing our study of God's Word. Until we meet again, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning in to this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.